So thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship. I always find it interesting. I know what the last song is going to be, because I know the order of service. And as I'm thinking about the sermon and thinking about the song, and the Holy Spirit just brings all things together. Uh, I exalt thee. The topic for the sermon today, we're, we're finishing our series on relationships. Some of you, that may be happy news, but uh, this Sunday is our last Sunday talking about relationships. I'm going to connect it to I exalt thee. Just give me a sec. Um, I, I also need to tell you that next Sunday I will not be here, um, but uh, I will be speaking at Nick Hoosterberg's church in Glencoe. So two weeks from today, when I'm back, I will bring pictures and a report of how things are going in the church plant in Glencoe. So you can look forward to that in a couple of weeks. So we'll have a guest speaker next Sunday here at Arendelle, and I will be, Cindy and I will be at um, the Glencoe Church next Sunday. Um, two weeks from today, when when, as I said, this sermon series is done. For the summer, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at the parables in the Gospel of Luke. Luke has by far the most number of parables, and he has the most number of parables that are only in the book of Luke. So we're going to start that in a couple of weeks, and over the summer, each week, we're going to work our way through the Gospel of Luke looking at different parables. So you can look forward to that and prepare in advance. So I was mentioning earlier about thinking about the song and putting things together in my mind with the sermon. And the last song we sang was called, I Exalt Thee. And the topic for today's sermon, the last one in the relationship series, is entitled, The Relationship Between Workers and management. And you think, how is that connected to I exalt thee? Well, it's very much connected, we're going to see, as we, we work our way through. We, we often think of work as, as sort of a necessary evil, that work is something that we do to get paid or whatever. Um, but if you, if you forget everything that I say today, the the main message of the sermon today is, I want to exalt Jesus in my work. I want to exalt Jesus in my work. So let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much that Jesus came and did the work that you called him to do. That he said, my will is to do the work of him who sent me that when he was on the cross, the last words were, it is finished. He did the work that you called him to do. And because of that, three days later, you raised him from the dead, and he is seated at your right hand and glorified because he accomplished the work that you gave him to do. Today we are here to hear from your word about the world of work. Some of us are in school, some of us are retired, 
And yet you have given each one of us a task to do, whether it's in the workforce, at school, in retirement, whatever it may be, we want to exalt you. We want to glorify you. We want to lift Jesus Christ up. So I pray today as we look at this important topic of uh, relationship in the workplace and between workers and managers and owners and employees and all of these things, that we would see Jesus, that we would glorify him, that you would open our hearts to receive the truth of your word, that we would be moved to exalt Jesus. So cleanse my lips now to speak your truth, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the world of work is a place that people have all sorts of different ideas. When I was young, hundreds of years ago, the idea was that if you work really hard and you work very long and you stay loyal to the same company for a long period of time, you will be rewarded. You will get a lovely pension plan. You will get uh, promoted. And so lots of people lived by what we used to call, you don't hear it very often anymore, but you used to hear the Protestant work ethic. And there was, when I lived in China, there were always debates about what is the purpose of work? Do you work to live or do you live to work? In other words, is work something you do so that you can have a happy life? Or are you simply alive to accomplish something? And so work becomes the center of everything. So as I said, when I was young, that was the model. That was the goal. You work hard, you achieve success, you climb the ladder, and that's how you live a significant life. But now I'm old. And lots of young people have different ideas. The last few years I was in China, there was this new philosophy that young people were adopting. I'll tell you the Chinese word. I'm sure I'll pronounce it badly. But it's, it's called um, Tangping. You know what I'm saying, right? Yes. This word in English means lie flat. You say, what in the world is lie flat? And it's a philosophy that says, no matter how hard I work, no matter how hard I try, no matter what I do, it's all a giant waste of time. So my philosophy of work is, I'm going to lie flat. I'm just going to lay down. I'm going to relax. I'm not going to do anything. And I'll live off my parents' money, I'll stay at home with my parents, I'll not do anything, I will just lie flat. And this comes in response to the philosophy when I first got to China, which is called the 996 philosophy. Jiu Jiu Liu, 996. And this philosophy says, if you are going to be a good worker, you need to work from 9 o'clock in the morning till 9 o'clock at night, six days a week. The 996 philosophy. And the students that I taught by the end had come to decide that this was not for them. And so they chose instead Tangping, 
lie flat. Here in North America, in the last couple of years, there has been um, not lying flat. There's something called quiet quitting. <clears throat> quiet quitting. And this is the idea that I will do the absolute bare minimum that my job requires because trying to work hard or impress the boss has no meaning. So I will just do the bare minimum and that has come to be known as quiet quitting. So we've got all these ideas floating around in the world. You've got older people saying, work hard, achieve success. And you've got younger people saying, do the bare minimum. Don't push yourself, lie flat, quiet quit, do all of these things. So today what we want to do is see what the Bible has to say about this idea of work. So we want to trace the theme of work through the Bible to answer three questions. The first question is obvious. The third question is somewhat obvious. But the second question sounds like it comes out of left field, but trust me, it doesn't. Question one we want to answer today is, what does the Bible say about work? What does the Bible say about work? Second question, which is, sounds like an oddball question, is why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery? You say, huh? What? Eh? Where did that come from? The reason I couch the question this way is because when you look in the New Testament, all the passages that talk about work and how you should work talk about slaves and masters. So question number two we want to answer is, why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery? Because that's a part of work in the New Testament. But then the last question, the most important question, the practical question is, how can I be a good Christian at work? How can I be a good Christian at work? So let's start with question number one. What does the Bible say about work? And we begin on the first pages of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, begin to show us what God thinks about work. So the first point we want to say is when we look at the creation story in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, what we see when we look at it with glasses that are looking for this idea of work, what we begin to see is, number one, God works and he commands that human beings work. So in the six days of creation, God worked. He created the heavens and the earth. He sustains it daily. So when you look at Genesis 1 and 2, when you look at other parts of the Bible in Isaiah and in Colossians that talk about he upholds the world by the word of his power. God works in creating the world and God works in sustaining the world. And when God created Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, what he says to them is that they are to work. 
that Adam and Eve were placed in the garden to tend the garden, to take care of the garden, to work the garden, to produce something. And the point that we can draw from this is that work is something that is intrinsically good. Work is not evil. Work is not sinful. Work is not bad. This is something that God has designed for us to do. At the same time, when we look at the creation narrative, one of the other things that we notice is that God worked six days and then he rested for one day. And by doing so, he is setting a pattern and a limit for work. One of the things that I had a lot of trouble with when I first came to China was every day is the same. If you want to go to the bank, the bank is open seven days a week. If you want to go shopping, shopping is open seven days a week. Everything is open all the time. And there's no cycle, there's no rhythm, there's no pattern. It's just you start and you just go and go and go until you drop. That's it. But when we look at what God has designed and pattern for us in creation is the Lord worked six days, he rested one, and this is a pattern for us. So what God is showing us is work is good, but it's not something that we do forever or continuously. There are times when work is necessary, and there are times when it is important to take a rest. And so when it comes to work, God is the pattern for us. Like God, we work, and at times we rest, and at other times we use that rest time to reflect. Third thing that we see when we look in different parts of the Bible is honest work is noble. Honest work is good. So we see in Ephesians 4, verse 28, Paul commands believers to work with their hands, to contribute something to their families, to the society. Work is a noble endeavor. Now, just because Paul says to work with your hands doesn't mean that every job has to be digging ditches or creating something with art or something that physically requires your hands. The rule that he's giving us is everyone needs to contribute. That can be something you do mentally. That can be something you do physically. Some jobs require a lot of thought process. Some require a lot of physical labor. But all honest labor is noble. So with that as a standard, with that as a pattern, why is work so hard? Why do we not like it? Why is it a pain to be involved in work? And the answer comes in the very next chapter in the Bible. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God and ate from the tree that they were not supposed to eat, when God confronted them in their sin, God cursed both creation and he cursed work. 
So after the fall, when God talked to Adam about the ground, he said, by the sweat of your brow, you will um, plow the ground and it will produce thorns and thistles for you. So work became frustrating. It's not easy. It is hard. That's why we call it hard work, because work is hard. And sin has affected every area of life. And sin continues to mar or corrupt or to make difficult the labor that we do. So that Paul in Romans 8 talks about this to say, we groan, we struggle waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Creation groans waiting for its redemption as well because we're living in a sinful world that makes work Hard. So if work is good, but work is corrupted by sin, what am I supposed to do now? Why, why do I have to work? Well, when we get to the New Testament, there are many passages that talk about the necessity of contributing, the importance of work, that work is mandatory. So obviously people work to make a living. So Exodus 20 talks about this, Colossians 3, we'll look at a little bit later, Ephesians chapter 6, all of these passages talk about the need to work to make a living. But in 2 Thessalonians, Paul talks about if a man will not work, he shall not eat. Because the problem in the Thessalonian church was they were waiting for Jesus to come back and their attitude was very much Let's lie flat. Let's just do nothing. Jesus is going to come back, so I don't need to do anything. I'll just sit around and wait for him to come back. And yet Paul has to tell them, if you're not contributing, if you're not working, how can you partake of the food? If you don't work, you don't eat. He tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, anyone who doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. How do you provide for your family? You work. But the Bible also recognizes that each of us has different abilities. When you look at Matthew 25 and you see the parable of the talents, we're all called to be faithful, to exercise the gifts and the talents that we have, whether they are many or few. Some can do a lot of work. Some can do a little work. But each one needs to contribute. So that is question number one, dealing with this idea of work in general. But our question number three, we're going to zero in on Colossians 3, which talks about slaves and masters. So now we need to come to question number two, which is, why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery? Because you can look all over the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's instructions about what slaves are supposed to do. There's instruction about what masters are supposed to do. And we recoil in horror. Why doesn't the Bible say, this is evil, this is bad, this is wrong? Well, let me tell you, 
I get really sick and tired, to be very blunt with you, I get really sick and tired when people pile on the Bible and on Christianity. Christianity is so out of touch. Christians just don't care about slavery and they use the Bible to defend slavery or they used to and that's why it's outdated. It doesn't make any sense. Well, let me tell you something. Slavery, as we know it, is evil. And the Bible thinks it is evil. What do I mean? Today, when you use the word slavery, the first thought that comes into my head, maybe comes into your head as well, is black people in Africa are kidnapped and dragged onto a boat where they are then transported to North America, where they are made to work for the rest of their lives for free until they die. If that's your definition of slavery, and that's my definition of slavery, then slavery is disgustingly evil and from the pit of hell. It is horrible. It is wrong. It was never right. The Bible in no way defends this kind of behavior. Do you want me to prove it to you? Two verses. Exodus chapter 21 verse 16 says this. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That sounds an awful lot like slavery. And in the law, it says, if you take a person, you kidnap them from your home, from their home, and you take them and you sell them, the person who sells them should be executed. The person who buys them should be executed. The Bible is not in favor of this kind of slavery. Deuteronomy 24, verse 7, talking about within Israel itself, argues the same thing. Deuteronomy 24, verse 7 says this, If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So I want to make that very clear. The way that you and I today use the word slavery, thinking about people coming from Africa to North America to work for free for their entire lives, the Bible says that is wickedly evil and wrong, and always has said that. And yet we find all these passages in the Bible that talk about slavery. What do we do with that? And so I have a couple of slides to talk about what the Bible says about slavery. So slavery in the Old Testament, not just in Israel, but in the Old Testament times. How did one become a slave in ancient times? And there are several ways, but I boiled it down to, to basically four. And the four are if your city or country or whatever fights against another country or city, and you lose, the people in your city become slaves. So you can be captured in war. 
The second way you can become a slave is if you commit a crime, you steal from someone. You steal their livestock, you steal their money, you steal their clothing. The law requires that you pay back twice what you stole. Now, if I steal something from you and I can't pay to restore what I've stolen, then I become your slave temporarily to pay off the debt to pay you back. The third way you can become a slave is if you borrow money and you don't pay it back, then you become a slave in order to pay back your debt. And when the debt is paid, you are free. The last way in the Old Testament that people become a slave is sometimes your life is just not very good. And you meet someone who, like Abraham, is a rich person, and you say, I will come and work for you. I will be your slave if I can eat at your table. I can live with your family. I can have a life with you. And this person sells themselves voluntarily to be a slave. So, the Old Testament is very careful about this, even this idea of slavery, because when you look at slavery in the Old Testament, it is not designed to be permanent. So if you are a Hebrew or a Jewish person and you get into financial trouble and you sell yourself into slavery, you will not be a slave for more than six years. Because every seventh year, all slaves are released. And if you are a foreigner and you are a slave, every 50 years, the year of Jubilee, all debts are canceled all inheritance land is restored, and all slaves are set free. It is a reset, and no one is subjected to working for someone else for their entire lives. Slavery is not permanent. So this was the design during the Old Testament times, but Colossians, the passage we're going to look at, is written in the first century to people who lived in the Roman Empire. So we need to understand the context of which Paul is speaking here. So in the New Testament era, the first century, in the Roman Empire, slaves were considered personal property. They, this is not what the Old Testament law says. I'm talking about the general sense in the first century. So if you were a slave in the first century, you had no rights. Your owner could say to you, do to you whatever they wished, including kill you. They were free to do whatever they wanted because you had no rights. The thinking way that went behind this actually can be traced back to Aristotle. We could talk about Aristotelian philosophy and blah, blah, blah. But the bottom line is simply this. Aristotle believed in a continuum. And so there's some people on the top, and then there's some people on the bottom. 
And so his view was some people are born to be wealthy, some people are born to be slaves. So if you're a slave, that's what you were destined to be anyway, so that's who you are. That's what you, you do. And so out of that thinking way was slaves are always going to be slaves. Slaves are nothing. They're just property. So do whatever you want with them. And so it looks very bad. And frankly, in, in certain aspects, it is very bad. But then when you get down to the nitty gritty of it, slaves served many functions in the society. And I'm going to say something that's going to deeply offend you but I'm going to say it anyway. 90% of the people in this room, if we lived in the first century, we would all be slaves. Do you want to know why? Because almost all the jobs that were carried out in government and in household situations were carried out by slaves. Are you a doctor? You'd be a slave. Are you a teacher? you'd be a slave. Are you on the police force? You would be a slave. Do you work in the trades? Carpenter, um, tent maker, printer, any of these kinds of jobs were accomplished by slaves. Why? Because you connected yourself to a household. You would sign a contract that made you a slave to partake in the benefits of a salary, a place to live. All of these things were given to slaves who performed these services. And when you look in the first century, the bottom line is this. Of the entire population of the Roman Empire, at least 20% were slaves. And some estimates say that 33% of all people who lived in the Roman Empire were slaves. One in three people was a slave. So when Paul or Peter is writing in the New Testament to talk about slaves and masters, they're not talking about kidnapping people from Africa. What they're talking about really is the world of work and doing a job that you have attached yourself either to a government entity or to a household. And you are living in a situation where you have no rights. And the master who is your authority, your employer, the person who is over you can do whatever they want to you. So what does the Bible say for you as a Christian in a situation like this? What are you supposed to do? And that's our final point. Paul, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 to 25, and then 4 verse 1, talks about how to be a good Christian at work. And first he talks to slaves or bond servants, as ESV calls them. And then he ends by talking to masters or employers. Let me read it to you quickly. Here's what it says. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. 
Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. So very quickly, the, the text is, is pretty plain what it says to do. But I want to highlight a couple of things. Number one, the word Lord in these few verses is used five times. And Paul is trying to emphasize strongly that Jesus is the Lord of your work. We need to fear the Lord. We need to work heartily as for the Lord. From the Lord you will receive the reward. It is the Lord Christ that you serve. And at the end, when he talks to masters, he said, you too have a master in heaven. The word for master is the same word for Lord. You have a Lord in heaven. So whatever the instructions that he gives here are within a framework that says, because if I am a Christian, I am in relationship with Jesus. I exalt him in everything that I do because he is my Lord and master. And so our relationship with him should transform the way we act on the job, whether I am the most junior employee or the CEO or somewhere in between. Jesus is the boss. I work for him. And so with that as a framework, when we look at the instructions, they make perfect sense. He says in verse 22, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Don't fool around with eye service. You know, if ever work with somebody like that, when the boss is around, they're the busiest be in the place. Oh, I got to work. And as soon as the boss goes, they're like, oh. and then they just stop. This is what it means by eye service. You just check it out. When the boss is around, I'm the hardest worker. But when the boss is not around, I'm the laziest person in the whole company. Don't be like that. Not by way of eye service, being a people pleaser, telling them whatever they want to hear and then doing whatever you want. But with sincerity of heart. Why? Because you fear the Lord. He is the real boss. He is the one who is in charge. So the first command that he gives is obey the boss. It's not about outward show. It's about recognizing who is the boss. In our scripture reading today, when Paul talks to Titus and gives him instructions about this, he says, 
Workers are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not stealing stuff from work, but showing all good faith. Obey the boss. He says that Christians are supposed to work heartily. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. If I am working, I need to work heartily. What does heartily mean? Well, he's already said, number one, it means obeying your employer. Not if they ask you to lie or to cheat, but when your boss says, do this work, you do this work. Number two, working heartily means you do quality work. You don't quiet quit. You don't lie flat. You do your best because you're doing your best, not for IBM or TD Bank or Canadian Tire or whoever it is you work for, because ultimately you work for Jesus. Do your best. Do quality work. Working heartily also means that you have a positive attitude. Heartily, literally in Greek, means from your soul. Work in a way that is positive. Don't, as Philippians say, do, don't do things with murmuring and grumbling. Have a positive attitude. Because you are working for Jesus. That's what he says in verse 24. Jesus is your real boss. He says in verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. That means two things. Number one, it means that if you are working for and representing Jesus, that means where you work is your mission field. God has strategically placed you in the place where you are, in your home, in your work, in the place that you volunteer, because you are there to be the salt and light for Jesus. Because Jesus is your boss. You are working towards your inheritance in Christ. You are serving the Lord Christ. So you may not like your job. You may not like the place where you work. You may not like the people you work with. But God has placed you there. And even if you don't like the work, recognize who you really work for. You really work for Jesus. And he wants your best. Verse 25 says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. We all work with those people, right? They cheat. They steal from the company. They steal from customers. They never get caught. They never get caught. And we think, Mmm. Mmm. 
Why do I keep working here? And, and those are the people that get promoted. And they're moving up the company. They lie. They cheat. They steal. They're bad people. And they keep moving higher and higher. And I'm here. And I'm working for Jesus. And I'm working hard. I'm doing my best. And I'm stuck right here. Again, who is your real boss? Jesus is your real boss. And one day, the people who lie and cheat and steal are going to have to give an account for what they have done in this life. Just as you are going to have to give an account for what you have done in this life. And so when we begin to see eternity in relationship to our work, that I'm not working for this company or this manager or this person. I'm working for Jesus to build the kingdom of God. It transforms the way you think about what you are doing and where you are and how you put your effort in because Jesus is the boss and I will exalt him. Finally, one verse for employers and managers, and you think, oh, that's because Paul doesn't care too much about them. But in fact, the thing that he asks employers or managers or CEOs or whatever word you want to use, he uses the word masters, the boss people, whatever he says to them is the most radically difficult thing to do. And he simply says this, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In the first century, if you were a master, you could do whatever you wanted. You could kill them. You could rape them. You could exploit them. You could do whatever you wanted. You were the master. And that was just assumed to take place because slaves are nothing. And yet when Paul says in Galatians, there's no male or female, there's no Jew or Greek, there is no slave or free. We are all one in Jesus. He is making a radical statement to say, masters, you need to treat your workers as equals. You must be just and fair. Justice means giving what is legally due. Fairness means you are the stronger party. You can't use your position of power to exploit. You have to be fair and watch out for the needs of the weaker party, which is the worker. Why? Because even though you look like you're at the top, even though you look like you are the boss, there is always someone above you. And that someone above you is Jesus. He is your master. He is your Lord. And one day you will have to stand before him and give an account for how you have handled your duty? And did you live and act and lead in a way that says, I am a follower of Jesus and I will exalt 
him. So that's what it says. So what am I supposed to do? I live in the 21st century. I am not a slave. But you have a job to do. So what am I supposed to do? The answer is simply, follow the pattern of Jesus. When we look at Philippians 2, when Jesus comes from heaven, he doesn't think his high status is something that needs to be grasped, but he takes the form, and the text says, a servant. But do you know what the word for servant is there? Slave. Jesus takes the form of a slave and is willing to do whatever his boss, the Father, has told him to do. And he is willing to die on the cross for our sins. And because of that, Philippians 2 tells us, he has been highly exalted and given a name above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the pattern for how we should follow after him to do the work of those who are above us. If we are a leader, we should be firm, but fair and just with those who work under us. So you may ask yourself, who's going to know? Who's going to know if I am a conscientious hard worker whether as an employee or as an employer. Who's going to know? You're going to know. The people who work with you are going to know. The people you live with are going to know. And most importantly, God knows. Because ultimately, he is the boss. So take Jesus to work with you. He deserves to be the Lord of your workplace. Our time is gone, but we've added several books to our church library, seven to be exact. I'll list them very quickly for you. Every Good Endeavor, Connecting Your Work to God's Work. These are available in our library after the service. If you want to probe this topic more deeply. It's by Tim Keller. Second book is Work, Its Purpose, Dignity, and Transformation by Daniel Doriani. He has a, a home group study. Maybe your home group would love to do this. He has a home group study related to this book called Work That Makes a Difference. Another one is a book about balancing the busyness of work with home life and church life and other responsibilities, and it's called Crazy Busy, a mercifully short book about a really big problem by Kevin DeYoung. Three more. Grace at Work, Redeeming the Grind and Glory of Your Job by Brian Chappelle. Gospel-centered work, Becoming the Worker God Wants You to Be, by Tim Chester. And lastly, The Gospel at Work, How the Gospel Gives New Purpose and Meaning to Our Jobs, 
by Sebastian Traeger. All of these books are available in our library if you would like to explore this topic further. But as we said, Christ is the Lord of our lives, not just at church on Sunday, but wherever we are. So take Christ to work with you. He deserves to be the Lord of your workplace. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that Jesus did the work that you asked him to do, that he was willing to come and die on the cross for our sins. And because he completed that work, you exalted him. And we've read in your word today about the responsibility of doing everything in our lives heartily for you because there is an inheritance. You are the Lord of our lives. We want to exalt you in all that we do, in all that we say, and in our work. Use us to be the salt and light you have called us to be in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, wherever you place us, that we would exalt Jesus and draw people to him. Use us for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.